hello and welcome to the Leaders in Clean Tech podcast. Each week, our host, David Hunt, speaks to a leading startup CEO, executive, or thought leader in the clean tech sector. Focused on the clean energy and clean mobility transitions, each guest shares the highs and lows of their clean tech journey, their industry insights, and their vision and hopes for the future. Hello, I'm David Hunt, CEO and founder of Hyperion Executive Search and your host for the Leaders in Clean Tech podcast. Thanks for joining me again in what continue to be eventful times. I hope you're all safe and well. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Andy Darger. Andy's the founder and CEO of Momentum Dynamics, a company he co-founded with his business partner, Bruce Long, back in 2009. Andy has a polymathic background with degrees in architecture and civil engineering. He lives outside of Philadelphia, but started life as the son of an Italian immigrant in Brooklyn, New York City, where his father ran an Italian food restaurant. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Clean Tech podcast, Andy. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. It uh, feels like a bit of a lifetime ago that we met at the Automotive EV uh, event in Coventry in the UK, uh, and we obviously first talked about coming onto the podcast, so it's great we could make this happen at, uh, at last, not least of which because wireless induction charging has fascinated me and has been such a, a, a great topic uh, for me personally over the last few years. It's great to hear a little bit more about how you're uh, leading the way in that area and a little bit more about the technology and the backstory to the company, but before we do that, part of the podcast is always to look at the founders and the, some, some of the personal stories behind the business and the technology as well. And you've got a, a very varied and very interesting background, which we could talk about for hours, but perhaps you could just give us a condensed little bit of a flavor of your backstory prior to founding Momentum Dynamics. Well, uh, it started really back in 2008 and into 2009, where a friend of mine who works at one of the major aerospace companies said, hey, I'm tired of what I'm doing. I really want to do something different. Why don't we start an energy company? And he got my mind turning on it. At the time, I was working on NASA and Air Force um, study projects, and um, uh, they were usually orbital um um, space station related projects. I had worked on the International Space Station as a consultant um, and those power arrays are part of my design. Wow. So um, I had another friend who was an extraordinary electrical engineer and I said, you know, the the problem in in uh, power communication in orbit is is the weight of all of the aluminum cabling. And if we could reduce that, we could build bigger and more powerful systems in space. And we got to thinking a little bit and the idea of taking this technology down to earth, putting it into place for the oncoming rush of electric cars uh, really struck me as a great business opportunity. So uh, he and I and a couple of other people got together, formed a company called Momentum Dynamics, and um, we began taking the first principles of uh, electromagnetic induction, and we created a super air core transformer, which allows us to transmit energy across uh, an air gap and do so with a lot of uh, with high efficiency and actually fewer parts than are needed in a cabled plug-in charger. Uh, we actually achieved our first working prototype. Um, oh, I have to add, um, my, my, my good friend, the electrical engineer, had also been on three expedition trips to Antarctica. Okay. And Antarctica is a very, very unusual situation where 
it's the coldest place. It's the driest place on earth. It is always blowing powder fine snow everywhere. And if you open an electronic instrument as he was designing for use in Antarctica, then uh, the snow would get inside and then melt as soon as it got warm. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to develop a wireless charging system as well. So he had seen it from that perspective. So put all of that together and we form a company. We, Within uh, six months, we were transmitting 10 kilowatts of, of power across an air gap of four inches. And uh, we thought that was pretty mm -hmm. good. And we looked at uh, around the world and we saw that a few other people had been trying, but no one had achieved that power level. And then the next step was to put a business plan together. And we quickly decided that high power was the key to everything, which means fast charging. And fast charging automatically, those two things, are really the key to everything uh, as electric vehicles expand. And then we also re realized as the third part of the story that the first market to really open and, and demand fast automatic charging would be the electric fleet market, not the car market. And that's where the company has been aimed uh, ever since. So from that point on, we began to grow. We began to put our technology into different vehicles and working with different OEMs. And we realized that Obviously, electric vehicles were on their way. Uh, we had to begin to explain to people how this technology worked and how it could be better. And it wasn't merely a convenience, but in fact, an essential uh, part of the growth of the new EV industry. And then we discovered something really important, which was that this automatic aspect of wireless charging really reduces the cost of operating fleets. Yeah. And to such an extent that um, no manually operated system um, and, and there's really no automated uh, plug-in charging system available for, to speak of, um, could keep the big fleets in operation at a point that's less expensive than diesel. So, um, you know, you could get an electric vehicle, you can put it into service, but when you really look at the operational costs over the lifetime, it ends up being more expensive than owning a diesel vehicle is. And that's not going to propel the market. Yep. So what we need to do is not add new costs back in, and that's the essence of our business proposal. Okay, okay. I think it's fascinating how both the business model ideas, but also um, the in innovations that have started in perhaps one format that are, are transformed into another. And uh, again, certainly uh, uh, the, the the space uh, environment and Arctic environments or Antarctic environments are, are the extremes that, uh, that that can really be challenging for any technology uh, to to uh, to be tested in. Um, you know, you know, David, that is a that is a really good point because what you want to do is design a new technology to meet the most extreme conditions. You want to put the big box on the truck first before you load it up with all the small boxes and then find out that you don't have room for the big box. You want to solve the hardest problems early and then you can scale down to the smaller and less difficult problems. That's really what we did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more that, uh, about the technology and how it works. And I know that you've got some well-established systems in place, both in Europe and uh, in the US. So perhaps you can give us some examples of where Momentum Dynamics systems are, are operational uh, and a little bit more about the, the technology itself. Well, the, the first market that really opened up was the electric transit bus market. And so we have installations around the United States uh, that are electric buses that solve a major problem. They're in the states of Washington, Colorado, Tennessee, uh, Maryland, and soon Indianapolis, Massachusetts, uh, and in California. 
uh, with new installations and expanded operations in the original locations where we uh, first began operations. So that, that's been going on now for three and a half years. And so these are commercial systems that are uh, solving a major problem for transit buses. In the, tra in the world of transit buses, uh, the, the reality is that you can't put enough battery on a bus to enable it to drive 20 hours or 16 hours a day or even 12 hours a day, especially in cold weather, on a single charge. And that obviates the whole idea of charging overnight in a, in a garage or depot. Mm -hmm. So unlike a diesel bus, which goes back to the diesel, I mean, it goes back to the depot at the end of the day and is filled up with a, a full tank of diesel fuel in five minutes, an electric bus takes hours to charge. And when you charge 100 of them or 300 of them all at once at the same time, you're pulling 30 or more megawatts yeah. across the system, which puts an extraordinary strain on the grid. It is far better to make a small charge incrementally many times during the day. We call it sipping versus guzzling. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, what you do is you put an inductive charger of the type that we produce along the travel route of the bus. All buses make a necessary or mandatory five minute stop or so during their course of operations at the end of each circulation route. And in that five minute period, you put back in enough energy to give it what it needs to drive the next circulation route. And therefore the battery never drains below a certain mm -hmm. amount. And, and even in cold weather, oh, by the way, in cold weather, you can have the amount of range that that bus has as a general rule because of the, the nature of chemical yeah. batteries. So that's the first problem we solved. The second one was, where do you put all the plug-in chargers in a garage? Uh, when these buses are normally parked nose to tail with hardly enough room to walk between them, there's no place to put a plug-in charger. These are pretty beastie uh, big boxes. And you have to have people plug them in. And that's a safety issue with cables laying on the ground in a wet environment. So we don't want to put those charging systems in the garage. We want to put them along the route or if they do go at the garage where the buses line up before they get parked and just top them mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. And what that does is keep the bus in operation 24 hours a day. Any London bus could drive any route in London and never have to go back to the garage for a charge. And it could, the same vehicle can stay in operation 24 hours a day if necessary. Which, as you say, is completely game-changing if we are to, to, to make this transition to, uh, to, to electrification of all, all transportation. Actually, buses and public transit is clearly a really, really important area. But I do believe you've also uh, other vehicles, I guess, that have the same challenges, but, but passenger vehicles in, in taxis. Is that correct? That is correct. So the same basic principle is applied uh, technically across all vehicle types. And we have a modular technology so that you can put say one module, which is capable of 75 kilowatts on a car sized vehicle like a taxi, or you could put two, four or six modules on something as big as a bus and you multiply that uh, by 75 kilowatts. And you can get up to 450 kilowatts inductively without a cable that way. Uh, and it's also very safe. Uh, there's no issue with uh, magnetic field radiation in these systems that mm -hmm. way. And so the taxi project is a variation on the theme of the bus project because uh, taxis are revenue generating vehicles. They are essentially fleet vehicles that happen to be cars. They, they have to stay in business often 
they have two shifts that run 24 hours, two times 12, and uh, two drivers times 12 hours. And you cannot pull that vehicle out of service for two hours to stand in line at a plug-in charger and then charge it in bad weather. It just doesn't work. And the drivers we've talked to all over Europe who've tried the plug-in charging approach really, really hate it. All right, so what we did is come up with an idea that says most taxis stand in, in, in ranks and they do so at train stations and airports and hotels and other places. And while they're doing what they normally do anyway, which is to stand in a, in a taxi queue, they move forward in the rank line one car at a time forward from one charger to the next charger to the third charger to the fourth charger, each one sipping one to two minutes or whatever it is that they're waiting until they move forward to the next charger. Yeah. And by the time they go pick up their passenger at the end of the line, they've got a nearly fully charged battery and they didn't give up a single minute of char- of revenue service to go get fueled. That's actually better than the diesel model. Yeah. And uh, the driver never needs to get out of the vehicle to do this. There's no swiping of a credit card. It all happens completely automatically, and the driver isn't even aware of it. I mean, as you said, it's such a, 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 an important solution if we can scale it. And we'll talk more about that in, in a moment. But we all know well that there are uh, many myths and many people who like to throw a spanner in the works of these things. And uh, perhaps, again, you can clarify in terms of from a you know, potential safety aspect. I mean, that we're essentially looking at electrical charging grids underneath a, a road, which potentially passengers and or cyclists or others will be uh, able to go over. So... Uh, I know that that's safe, but perhaps you can elaborate on just how how that works or if you do have any um, uh, issues with people throwing those kinds of comments or, or, or myths at your path. Oh, yeah, we've heard that, you know, forever. Uh, and so the first thing I have to remember to tell people is that the system is turned off until a qualified vehicle is positioned above it. So, yes, there are pads in the ground, and those pads are fully inert until the vehicle is positioned above it. Uh, So a human being standing on top of a pad is uh, no different than standing on an ordinary piece of pavement. Um, Secondly, the magnetic field that we emit doesn't even hardly get past the edge of the vehicle. So you could stand with your toes along the fender line of the vehicle at any position and you'd experience less magnetic field exposure than you would by using an electrical appliance in your hands. Mm -hmm. So uh, all electrical appliance appliances give off magnetic fields. It's unavoidable. It is uh, uh, not recognized. People haven't thought about it. But because we have an air gap, they think we're radiating energy into free space, which is simply not the case. The physics behind that are complicated, and I won't bore you with it, but it's it's certainly safer than uh, many electrical appliances that, and like induction cook stoves, for example, in your in your kitchen yeah. are far more uh, radiative. So, um, you know, there's power lines everywhere. We don't pay attention to them, but they're underneath streets and pavement yeah. wherever we go in cities. And this is no different than that. They meet all required international codes. Wherever you go, we are legal. And um, people would be surprised to see just how safe this really is. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, again, it's because of, I guess, fear of change and the transition that people have these comments that yet not not thinking about the phone that they put to their head all day or, or, or as you say, the power cables that might be passing their, their yard or their garden or that uh, are out in the street. So uh, I, I think it's just, uh, again, important to... Um, bust those myths as often and uh, and wherever we can. Yeah, th- I could talk for, on that subject for hours. But uh, one point, to, you know, you mentioned putting a phone next to your head. 
Um, I know it's a bit technical, but uh, the phone that you're operating is at millions of cycles per second. It has a high frequency. That's how it can be small and effective. It doesn't operate at a very high power level, but it operates at a very high frequency. We operate at a high power level, but a very low frequency. And at low frequencies, the human body is effectively invisible to electromagnetic radiation. So it passes right through you without doing any harm or tissue heating. And uh, the allegation against cell phones is is the, that it does cause tissue heating within the brain, for example. Mm. We are nothing like that. And it is a, a matter of uh, the frequency at which we operate, which is far lower than the AM band on the radio. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Listen, again, there are, I'm sure, listening a number of technical nerds, and we'll point them in the right direction for uh, for your website and other places where there's details of uh, of and some examples of uh, of projects that you have. I think one thing that's um, particularly interesting, I, I work with uh, a lot of EVSE charging infrastructure manufacturers globally, and uh, I, I won't mention a name, but about two or three years ago, I was speaking to a CEO about wireless inductive charging and uh, suggested that you need very deep pockets and to employ hundreds of engineers to make any headway in, in that space. But you've clearly done so with a relatively small team. And as far as I can see, you know, n- not substantial amounts of fundraising. So how have you managed to steal a march on some of the more established uh, sort of global players in this space? Well, I, I tell you, it, 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 it's not easy to do this. It is, it is a, a difficult technical challenge. Uh, but if you are good, let's see. We, we solve the problem by thinking differently. You have to start with a clean sheet of paper and you, you need to forget all the things that tend to be impediments to progress. And that is the hallmark of invention. That is, that's what people do when, uh, you know, just before they come up with something important or significant in the way of technical innovation. We put a team together. And I suppose one of the things that I really learned along my career was, you know, by working with some of these larger engineering firms and being in close contact with NASA and uh, watching the models that they established, I was able to put together a team of engineers who were really just the right group of people to do this. Plus, we had the benefit of um, that one that uh, the original found one of the original founders of the company was Bruce Long. Unfortunately, we lost Bruce to cancer a few years ago, but Bruce was uh, uh, a polymath in terms of electrical engineering and saw things that other people missed. And so we we did that as a group. And that's how we got to where we are. And you don't have to have the deep pockets that people presume. The money doesn't solve the problem. It's the talent that does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's another thing that I find fascinating in terms of the founder's journey, because clearly you've a broad and varied background. I'm quite sure that you've managed, you know, complex projects and teams prior to, to, to founding Momentum Dynamics. But looking at some of the challenges around creating the team and, and, and the business and business models, you know, perhaps some of, what have been some of the non, biggest non-technical challenges you faced in, in this time? Non-technical challenges, um, always, uh, for any company, it's always capital formation because, you uh, not just in the United States, but really, I think around the world, uh, perhaps the Western world, I don't know if it's true everywhere, but um, venture capital is not what venture capital used to be. Uh, Venture capital has become much more like private equity and private equity wants a a more or less guaranteed return in a specified period of time and doesn't really like the word venture. 
Um, so um, we decided to finance the company by an extraordinary means, which is the old-fashioned way. Um, we went to initially friends and family who financed the company, and we then went to high net worth individuals and made um, uh, an extraordinary money raise based on based on the belief and faith that uh, individual people had in our ability to do this. And it would have taken forever had we, you know. Uh, given up our souls to make a deal with a uh, private equity firm of some kind at the early stage of the company. And I don't think we would have succeeded. Uh, We we succeeded because of our investors and finding the right ones has been the challenge. Okay. And that's certainly something that's uniform. It's it's just say money doesn't solve all the problems, although you need it to scale. Um, But it's also around having the right money on the right terms, which sounds an obvious thing, but it's really tempting as a a founder to uh, pick up a check if there's one on the table. And that's not necessarily always the right thing to do. And, 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 you know, the, uh, again, the history of, of innovation is not where money solves problems. You can have well-funded companies that go bust and they can be, you know, um, just full of money in their accounts. But it really does help to be hungry. Um, and in the beginning, we were definitely hungry. Uh, we were hungry and lean. And that was good. Yeah. That taught us many lessons. It caused us to think very carefully. And here's the combination that really makes a a difference. And it takes a lesson from other companies that have succeeded to be lean, but also to be tolerant of error. Meaning we want our technicians and electrical engineers and other people to take chances and fail and live in a culture within the company in which they are encouraged to do so. That is not a negative. It's not a, a, you know, a, um, uh, uh, a thing that we would put a mark against somebody because they took a risk and it didn't work, whatever they tried to do. Yeah. In fact, they got bonus points for doing so. And that got us uh, across the line faster. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a, the mark of uh, a, a great culture and working with primarily with sort of post-investment startups and those early ones is that culture where clearly mistakes aren't sought, but they are respected and they're, they, you know, they're, they're valued because of what they, the learning that they bring. That's absolutely true, and uh, we that in our company culture is extraordinarily important. We are a mix of men and women and young and old. It's a very diverse team of of people, uh, but also extraordinary talent. And at this point, sixty five people on our way to one hundred and fifty. Right. Right. And that, I mean, I won't go down that path because that's clearly the world that we live in in terms of finding talent for, for organizations that, that, are, that are in this space. But I think just reiterating the importance of the right talent, the right mix of people and the right culture that's really instrumental, regardless of how much money you have or even how clever your technology is to a success of a business. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Okay. So um, we're... I'm sure it's the same in the US and certainly in Europe at the moment. There's a there's a great deal of momentum. We're seeing a great number of new electric vehicles coming to market, and the demise of the internal combustion engine looks on the horizon at least, which is uh, which is a great thing. Even though some OEMs are, are kicking and screaming along uh, the journey, but clearly to to get to where we want to go on the transition, EV charging infrastructure is is, is a key to that transition. Um, we've touched on some of the technical aspects of, of the Momentum Dynamics solution and, and, and its advantages. But from a, again, from a non-technical perspective, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges to the mass rollout of, uh, of electric vehicles and, and charging infrastructure? 
So it's going to sound a little bit funny, perhaps, but the uh, challenge is to convince the decision makers that our story is not a too good to be true story. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we get a little bit of hand waving in the beginning when we tell people what we can do and, you know, transmit half a megawatt across an air gap safely uh, with no noise and completely automatic operation, including an automatic billing. Um, that's just unheard of. And uh, it, when we first told people we could do 10 kilowatts, the automakers told us we were violating the laws of physics. <laughs> they just didn't believe it. Uh, now it's a bit more taken for granted because people have seen it operate. There have been a few other companies also who've tried to do it and not done such a great job of it. And we have to you know, come in from behind and, and correct that. But the, the, um, the challenge has been to say, uh, you know, you can think differently about fueling these electric vehicles. The infrastructure concept that you have isn't really the one that's going to take us into the future. We need to take uh, a non-incremental step forward in our thinking. And the trick to doing that is to actually build the technology, put it on a vehicle, and show it to them. And that's the thing. The, the ground truth evidence of wireless charging is gobsmacking if you see it and and so we've 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 brought the automakers in we've i mean we are we are working with at least two i'll say major european automakers right now who once they saw it basically said this is the way of the future Mm -hmm. um and that's also true with the truck makers and the bus makers um and 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 the people who own the fleets it's actually the people who own the large fleets who came to us unsolicited and said, hey, we've run the numbers and there's no other way to do this. We have to go to an automated system and it has to have no cables on the floor that people can trip over and no cables that get caught up in our conveyor belt systems. Um, And we don't want to spend money uh, on downtime fixing the charging system because it's not operating and therefore our vehicles can't go out and do their job. We need a system that's reliable. So no moving parts is also part of the advantage of wireless charging. Yeah. So all of that came together in a really special way. And that's, that's how we overcame the challenge. That's um, I, I can see the, obviously the commercial model and the opportunity for, for fleets in particular and for, uh, for, for OEMs, but it's a complex world in terms of so many stakeholders, those who provide the energy uh, utility companies, the TSOs and DSOs who distribute the, the energy through the grid. Uh, and then of course you overlay that with central and local governments and municipalities. Everybody has a, a voice and, a, and an opinion. And I think that's one of the challenges that, uh, that we all face. Is that something where you've had involvement with, um, not just the sort of users of the technology, but those who manage policies and other barriers potentially to to the rollout? Not so much barriers. Actually, it's been quite the reverse. We've had uh, great receptivity in the utility industry. Now, I won't mention any names. One of them is published already, but in the United States, in North America, uh, uh, and that includes the United States and Canada, but also across Europe, we have had uh, utilities come to us and we have uh, grown the relationships with several of them. They see themselves, and we agree with this idea, that the electric utilities are the natural agents for the infrastructure build out. Um, now, we all know them to be um, um, 
inertia bound organizationally and slow to move because they haven't needed to move fast in the past, but they are breaking off retail divisions that are unregulated. They're separate and apart from their regulated uh, energy distribution, um, uh, you know, uh, brothers uh, in terms of subsidiary companies, Mm -hmm. but they are acting in the role of charge point operators and installers. And they have a few natural advantages. And one of those is um, access to capital. They also have access to the energy. And thirdly, they have access to the property. And they do that through natural utility easements, which exist inside most cities in um, all, all the city streets. So they are able to install technology quickly and rapidly, more so than uh, a private company can. Yeah, no, it's been very interesting. We worked with uh, Energy, which is uh, obviously a European utility uh, on their e-mobility business model. And, and as you said, they have all of those advantages. And of course, they also have the data on the customers and, and many other things that they can utilize to, to, to bring a solution to the market where they have those advantages. So one of the things that you know we found very uh, surprising, not surprising, but uh, uh, re- refreshing, is that um, one of the utility companies that we're working with um, actually, I can say the name because it's public. It's Fordham, which is the Finnish state-owned utility. Um, you wouldn't expect this sort of thinking from a state-owned utility, right? But here, here you've got a company that said to us, we need to automate the billing process. And so when each of the taxis in Oslo charges, that's an individual independent charging event and a billing event. So these are micro transactions. They've never done anything like that before. They usually have a meter outside a building and once a month the meter is is electronically mm-hmm. read and you get a bill. For a pro- you know a known property gets a a bill on a regular basis. But what if you have millions of micro transactions happening over a period of time and they all have to be aggregated and associated with an individual account? Well, that technology now exists because of our Oslo project. Oslo is a completely automated billing system. So um, 100 different cab owners, uh, each one owning their own vehicle, can charge an unlimited number of times, and each event will be separately recorded and billed uh, through one aggregated system. Yeah. I, again, that's another massive uh, game changer. As you know, I'm sure it's the same in the US, but certainly in parts of Europe, uh, certainly in the UK, you know, it's driving an EV, you, you need to be carrying a dozen RFID cards, RFID cards around the country to, to sort of access most of the charging infrastructure. So having that kind of automated um, charging is one thing, but having your automated billing uh, and clarity of billing is, uh, is again, quite significant. Yeah, we think it's uh, we we agree it's a game changer, and you'll you'll see, I believe, the growth of EVs and EV infrastructure move increasingly in the direction of automation. Not necessarily am I talking about autonomous driving. I'm talking about hands-free, contactless, um, without thought. In other words, uh, fueling in the background automatically makes the experience of owning an EV a far better one than owning an ICE vehicle. And that's really the trick, isn't it? Because what we want, and and people are realizing this now, it wasn't always true, but now it's becoming true. Owning an EV is not a, um, a degradation in quality of life. It is actually 
true to the cause of the, the, the idea that the next generation of technology should be an improvement over the last generation of technology. And so electric vehicles actually are better than um, gasoline and diesel vehicles in many ways that we all know. I mean, we know about many of them, but we thought it was going to require a sacrifice to own them. Well, the only sacrifice really has been two things. One has been uh, the, the higher cost, initial cost of the introduction of these new vehicles. But secondly, the lack of a charging infrastructure. How do we fuel them? And we worry about range as well. So automated charging solves the second problem. And the other problem is solving itself through mass production. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's one of the key things that uh, we have to get across is it's actually regardless of any green credentials or, or sustainability angle, which clearly is important. Uh, it's just a better, just a better way to get about. And uh, I, I don't miss at all queuing up to get my hands dirty, putting diesel or petrol into to my vehicle when I can just plug in an overnight. Um, and uh, I think once people experience that, then clearly that becomes, uh, I should say, a known entity and overcomes a lot of the preconceptions about, as you say, making sacrifices in order to do something uh, worthy and buying an electric vehicle. I couldn't agree with you more. The, 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 the future of electric vehicles is going to be hands-free. It's going to be automated. And that's the, um, the non-incremental uh, leap in thinking. It's not much of a leap. It's a bit above a step, but it's, uh, we have to skip a step to get to that. And that is getting away from the idea of fueling through a hose. You don't have to touch anything. It just happens. Yeah. This is electricity. It's able to do that. Yeah. I mean, the versatility of electrons is, uh, whether that's from from renewables or energy storage or immobility, it's just, uh, again, a big argument for, and I know there's some other arguments for hydrogen and other technologies or vectors, but uh, electrons are just so versatile. That's all true. Okay, so one thing I'd just uh, touch on, because your, your take is perhaps slightly different from from some of the founders and CEOs I speak to, which is going back to the point of, of money. Now, a lot of um, you know entrepreneurs and founders in our space clearly are driven by the mission. They start with uh, the, 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 the mission in mind and uh, creating a better, more sustainable world or society. But often, of course, you need along the way to be looking at how you fund that. And some have in mind an exit, whether that's from private equity, trade sales, strategic investment or IPO. But uh, it, it can be tough to scale a business without money how are your you know you talked about how you founded the company on a, on, on a shoestring so to speak or with the support of high net worths but um to 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 dominate the world how are you looking at the the future what's the future for the company in the next few years well of course i have to be uh guarded in 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 what i say when it comes to finance and securities but uh i would say that we are in the opposite position that we were when the company was founded now we are saying no to money um, so uh, everyone wants it on EVs now, it seems, and I can tell you that uh, we're being very thoughtful about how we will be scaling. Of course, um, the need for capital will be great to do such a big thing in a rapid way, and that's what this requires. Yeah. Scaling is a, a difficult thing to do, but it also requires partnership. And partnership means uh, not just capital, but what the partner who's bringing the capital brings in addition to the capital. Yep. So we're being very choosy about who we partner with. And 
um, we have the great fortune of being able to make that decision. Yeah. Yeah, no, certainly increasingly, and maybe it's just for some of the larger uh, infrastructure type of uh, companies I speak with, the appeal of a, a strategic partner stroke investor over and above purely VCOP money is uh, for obvious reasons, but it's uh, um, a better win for, for everybody. We agree, and we're thinking very internationally about that as well. So we, um, as a company, are focusing on North America and uh, basically the whole of Europe, and within uh, both environments, there is uh, a vast amount of money to be invested into this. They are looking from their perspective, the investors are, uh, to make sure that they find the right partner, just as we are looking for the right partner. We think we may have found that partner. And... Uh, I can, can't talk more about it right now. <laughs> no, I understand. I understand. Okay. Well, listen, it's been great to talk to you about the journey so far. We'll obviously on the uh, episode page point people in the direction of the website when I learned some, some really great videos and some examples of the case studies of the, of the uh, technology in action, which is uh, really good to see. And finally, Andy, I'd love to, uh, I personally love to read and, of course, listen to podcasts. Um, so I'd like to ask if there are any books, podcasts, thought leaders, or other go to sources that you have to, that have and continue to inspire you. Actually, there are. There's a number of them, but one that really stands out, and I've read several times over, is a book by the author John Gertner, G E R T N E R, and it's called The Idea Factory which gives the history of Bell Laboratories across the, uh, the, the 20th century. And it is a, f a fascinating read on uh, how to organize uh, engineers and scientists and technologists to come up with things that people thought were not possible. And it's, it's, I would recommend it to anyone. Yeah, I mean, those guys did some amazing things, not least of which from, from my own personal interest when I first got into solar PV to recognize that Bell Labs were essentially you know, very much behind the, those original uh, modules back in the, uh, in, in the 50s. Absolutely. I mean, Bell Labs is um, arguably the most um, effective invention factory uh, ever in human history that I'm aware of, at least. And uh, they came up with everything from the communication satellite to the transistor to uh, Unix, the software system, um, and uh, they actually built the first telecommunication satellite and, and worked to get it launched. And as soon as it worked, the, the government stepped in and took it away from them. But it was uh, an amazing story. Yeah, no, it sounds like a, a fascinating read. And by the sounds of for the, the conversation we had so far, you, you've obviously tried to implement some of those ideas or, or concepts around innovation into, to, into momentum dynamics. Yeah, in particular, what they were good at is, um, of course, they had an unlimited budget and or effectively unlimited budget, and they um, were superb at finding talent and then causing people of different backgrounds to work together, which it induced a, a sense of creativity by the, the various participants. They would put groups of five people together, a physicist, an electrical engineer, a biologist, maybe somebody completely unrelated to those two things, mm -hmm. uh, a mathematician, and um, maybe a chemist, all together into a work group of five people. And so... Um, and sometimes they would give them a project that was specific and sometimes they would say, see what you come up with. Mm -hmm. And technically it was supposed to be related to the AT&T 
main business of uh, telephonics, but uh, they they then would come up with things like um, transistors. Um, and it was the it was the nearness the, the the thing we're missing now in COVID is the fact that we're not interacting so yeah. closely. But they had the opposite situation. They deliberately caused these people to interact with each other, and that there's lessons to be learned from that. No, absolutely. Sounds a fascinating read. I'll, I'll dig that myself and make sure that we uh, put a link to the book on the episode page for the podcast. But uh, appreciate you sharing that with us, Andy, and uh, and for the time you've uh, spent on the podcast so far. It's a great story, and we're looking forward to, to seeing much more wireless charging infrastructure around the world and many more electric vehicles. You will, I think, in both cases. And thank you so much for inviting me. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Wireless charging is such a potential game changer, it really is. So please do check out the links to Momentum Dynamics via our episode page. Next episode, I interview a CEO with quite a different but equally fascinating backstory. I hope you'll join me then.